You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, April 13th. I'm Maggie Lake here with Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro, and we are joined live by my colleague, Weston Nakamura. For those of you who follow Weston on Twitter, you know he's been all over this yen story, and the Japanese currency broke through some pretty significant levels today. So he was nice enough to get up early. I always think I'm going to say stay up late, get up early. I'm not sure it matters, Weston, because you never sleep these days because you, you're all over this story. So what do we need to know? What's going on? Yeah, thanks for allowing me to interrupt you once again, Darius. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I love and, it, like, man. You're my eyes Japan, in the sky in Japan. Japan blows up every time, um, you know, you, you're, you're uh, on the daily briefing. So, <laughs> you know, delayed indicator. But yeah, um, so just very quickly. So dollar yen, uh, as we know, the yen has been getting crushed. Uh, the yen actually um, year to date is the second worst performing currency. Um, and it's second just by a hair to the Turkish lira. And if you actually do it from uh, March, it is the worst performing currency, and that includes the Russian ruble as well. Um, so dollar yen broke through a very key level, 125.86, uh, just after Japan cash uh, closed today. Um, that was that was a level that was tested a few times, failed uh, um, or you know held, but it failed today. And then you saw an immediate jump into dollar yen in the 126 handle for a two decade high. Uh, so the significance of 125.86 is that that is the high print of uh, BOJ Governor Kuroda's tenure. So, Brian, on chart one, um, if you take a look at this chart, it's basically, you know, uh, that 125.86 was made um, back in 2015, shortly before the August 2015 China Yuan deval. But basically from 2013, Kuroda took dollar yen from under 80 to 125.86, like 60% move in two years. Um, after hitting that level, Darian, you know, fell as low as like it broke below 100 on Brexit Day in 2016, but basically kind of just meandered around. Um, but um, you know, right now, the fact that it broke through that that new level, we're now kind of in uncharted Kuroda territory, if you will. Um, and so that is the significance of that particular um, breakthrough. Yeah, and Weston, whenever this kind of thing happens, everyone immediately thinks about okay. Where's it go from here? What's the next level? Because sometimes it's like a straight shot. And what what's going to be the response uh, in terms of Japanese officials? So, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Or what are you hearing? What level should we be looking at in terms of, you know, is, is the sky wide open here? And what would prompt a move or a response from officials? Sure. So, uh, Brian, if you pull up chart two, I just want to show everyone, just to remind everyone, the significance of dollar yen. Um, it's basically dollar yen and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Those move kind of in lockstep. Um, that's that's just been the case um, for for some time now. Um, and so, uh, so that's first of all the significance of people are wondering why should I care about dollar yen? Well, you should care about dollar yen because it moves in tandem with the risk-free yield uh, or the risk-free rate. Um, but there's there's basically like you know I get a lot of questions on like what level of dollar yen or what level of yen will BOJ intervene to stop the yen plunge, if at all. And so I just want to make two points on that. Uh, first of all, um, 
it's actually the BOJ is not the body that would oversee FX intervention should it come to that. FX is uh, under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Finance, not the BOJ. Hence, this is why, in large part, why uh, BOJ, who is focused on rate intervention, is at the moment solely and staunchly fixated on capping JGB yields, knowingly doing so at the expense of the yet. Um, and then, so the second, so it's very important to to know that it's not BOJ that would do anything with FX, and clearly they don't necessarily care about FX for, for that matter. Second point is that within the Ministry of Finance, you know, the comments that you get um, from the likes of Finance Minister Suzuki um, is like that they repeat again and again is that like the, the sharp and extreme moves in dollar yen are uh, like concerning and undesirable and all that. But n note that like what they're saying is like it's not a specific line in the sand like death print level per se. It's the volatility and the sheer velocity of the move itself. So, like, take, like, dollar yen at 150. That would be far more acceptable than, say, dollar yen 130 if the path to 150 were slow, gradual, and orderly mm. versus, like, an overnight flash crash to 130 and then back to, like, 120. Like, that that kind of stuff is, is concerning because Japan is a major importer. It's a major exporter of, you know, raw materials, of goods, massive deployer of capital, uh, investment capital, and all that. All right. So if you actually see um, on uh, uh, chart three, Brian, um, there's this chart here here of um, implied volatility uh, using CME's CVOL index of yen volatility um, and against the like G5 basket of peers. And what you'll see is that historically, you know, yen volatility sits below its G5 peers, but is now surged above G5 peers. And that's with the G5 FX vol itself surging. Uh, so this is not a normal dynamic um, in which like risk models are, are based off of, and that can have global cross-asset repercussions in areas that we, we simply wouldn't know un, un, until we do. Um, so yen volatility is you know, should be very concerning to, to all of us, not just because of that tight correlation between yen and, and U.S. Treasury volatility, uh, but uh, Brian, if you go to the, the chart, was it uh, four? Uh, yeah, chart four, yeah. Uh, if you look at chart four, um, this is yen volatility and U.S. Treasury volatility. And so these two are assets that are, you know, in, in the world of uh, volatile risk assets, these are supposed to be kind of anchored down and these are moving up and surging together in tandem. And that is a huge problem um, for, you know, uh, across the spectrum when, when you have things that are supposed to be stable, behaving very unstable. And Yeah, Weston, I just want to jump in because when yep. you say something like that, it makes me worried that... Um, you know, is there the potential for sort of unforeseen consequences um, or areas of the market we wouldn't think are affected just because these are used, you know, these kind of not nothing's, I guess, risk free, but um, less risky, very stable assets have got to be a part of tons of models, tons of portfolios. You know, th this is the basis of the financial system. So when you start to see volatility here, do, and it's and the yet you say the end's in uncharted territory, can we even wrap our head around where that starts to sort of create trouble? That's my concern when I hear you say that. Yeah, so th that's a great question, Maggie. And the, the answer is that I don't know. And I don't know, like, we don't know what we don't know is the answer. So, like, I, I don't ha I have no idea what the potential spectrum of, of you know, possible knock-on effects are. I just know that it's not one without consequence, and we'll just know after the fact. And then just because nothing is happening on the surface doesn't mean that there aren't, like, 
Um, you know, there wasn't like bombs with wires cut at the last second or anything like that either, right? Um, but I, I will note though that you know, uh, in the last few days, uh, that airtight U.S. Treasury to yen correlation has started to weaken a bit. So, like Brian, if you go to chart five, um, so you'll see like this is just a chart on the top chart is just basically CME yen futures and CME Treasury futures, and you see they move basically, you know, exactly in tandem together. The bottom chart is um, a zoom in on the CPI release from yesterday. And you'll see that right upon that release, you see Treasury futures, 10-year Treasury futures just get, you know, bid up like in an instant, as well as yen futures. But that's a, that's a knee-jerk systematic algo move. And then after that, you'll see yen futures just start to, you know, slink back down again because it just wants to head lo lower and it's kind of decoupling. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that is that is important too that 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 there's a slight you know uh, starts divergence and decorrelation that's starting to happen uh, as well. Um, but having said that, US, yen and U.S. Treasuries are still the most highly correlated among cross asset pairs globally. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, just putting aside like words of like the like officials or whatever, just looking at their actions, right? The Japan authorities, as in the BOJ and the Ministry of Finance, as a collective. It seems that they are prioritizing putting a floor under JGBs than they are under the yen. Uh, in fact, by capping JGB yields, as we all discussed last time, they're doing so at the expense of the yen. You have to pick one or the other, right? So you cap yen, uh, if you cap uh, JGB yields and, and uh, sovereign yields elsewhere head higher, then the yen is going to weaken. So the message to me is very clear. For the moment, as long as global yields are on the rise, Japan uh, yields are capped. Yield spreads between Japan and the rest of the developed world will widen out, and as long as Japan is in need of importing like energy and commodities at ever higher prices, the yen will continue to weaken by both market forces as well as by conscious choice of Japanese officials. Um, if Japan, however, starts buying treasuries, uh, and the U.S. then you know the U.S. and Japan yield spreads would narrow, and then dollar yen would cap. But if this yen plunge itself is deterring Japanese investors from deploying that capital overseas into the U.S. Treasury market, for example, then that may end up becoming this sort of self-fulfilling like feedback loop of, you know, higher sovereign yields, wider yield spreads, weaker yen, more volatility in these supposedly non-volatile instruments, and, and on and on and on um, into this yeah. like vicious loop. So that's the kind of and scary. that is a completely different regime than than what we've been in. So we we talked a lot at the macro experience last week in San Diego. The fact that you know are we in in a different period? How do we need to think about these big changes that are happening? And the fact there's so much confusion. This looks like it just adds another layer onto that conversation. Weston, I know you got to jump. Thank you so much for jumping on because this is I think a story that we need to pay attention to, but it's not front and center, especially in the middle of the U.S. trading day when there's so much else going on. Um, so I hope everyone puts it on their radar. And if you want more analysis and updates, Weston, as I mentioned, is all over this. You can follow him at Across the Spread on Twitter. Check out West on Trading on our YouTube channel. He's going to have constant updates and do his best to make some sense of it for us all. So um, if you have any questions, drop them in both those places. Weston, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Maggie. Thanks a lot, Darius. I always want to say get some sleep, you. but I just I know it's not happening. So get back <laughs> yeah, on Twitter. I gotta watch it. I gotta watch Darius now. You know it's Darius now. Excellent. All right. Seriously, thanks, Weston. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, so, Darius, this is a lot to wrap our head around. Um, I yeah. know this is something that you um, have been paying attention to. But like I said, um, you know, in addition to the inflation and the earnings that are coming out, and there's just so much going on. Um, any quick thoughts on on what Weston said in terms of that, Yen? How, are you going to change anything you're doing now that this is sort of broken through that level? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take the conversation back to where we were last time Weston and I were on. We were sort of previewing uh, the kind of potential comments that Kuroda made today, which effectively tripled down on the BLJ's yield curve control policy. And so what does that do? What are the kind of nonlinear dynamic sort of implications of that? Um, on the negative side of the ledger, incremental yen weakness is obviously a, a boon to the dollar and on a correlation weighted basis. It puts incremental pressure on emerging market economies, which are obviously been struggling with a strong dollar and slowing growth, um, you know, throughout this sort of um, last uh, several quarters. Um, that also puts incremental pressure on Japan's rival economies, such as China, to incrementally potentially devalue. Obviously, we go back to August of 2015 in terms of the China deval situation. There, China may decide not to, amid all of its growth concerns uh, at the current juncture, not the least of which is locking down its, its its largest city in terms of GDP and population. You know, they may feel incremental pressure coming out of that lockdown to try to get things going from a from a stimulus perspective. So, um, anything they do as it relates to expanding the PBOC's balance sheet, cutting triple R, cutting um, uh, interest rates, uh, broader policy rates may have an outsized influence over uh, the Chinese yuan. We're not making that call yet. I don't think it's, I think it's too soon to make that call, but I think investors mm -hmm. need to be keep that risk front and center. On the positive side of the ledger, and this is exactly what we're seeing in markets today, Kuroda's commentary, if you were a Japanese capital allocator, and oh, by the way, Japan is the world's largest capital allocator. They have the largest net international investment position in the world. Kuroda effectively gave investors in Japan, those, those, those capital allocators, the green light to go buy duration in the treasury market, to go buy duration in a, across global sovereign debt markets. There was an issue, there was a fear there that a revision to Japan's yield curve control policy, i.e. Uh, boosting the kind of upper boundary of that, that range, would ultimately put incremental pressure on global sovereign debt markets on the long end of those sovereign debt curves globally. Well, now you could sort of check that box and say, hey, that that incremental duration risk is not going to come to fruition, at least not over the near term. And we can sort of rest assured that, hey, look, at the bare minimum, the BOJ is going to have our backs as it relates to incre increasing our duration risk. And so there's become there's been a bid to the Treasury market in the last kind of couple of days, uh, partially as a function of the, 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 the miss in core CPI here in the U.S. Uh, in the March CPI data. But I would argue that this sort of BOJ development, in my opinion, is actually the bigger story here. Yeah, and that's so interesting and so important to keep in mind because at the face of it, so yeah, there was a miss, and I want to dig into that inflation. There was a, we call it a miss. It was it was a little bit lighter than expected in in, <laughs> yeah. a, in an area where the inflation numbers have been like blowing past forecasts. It seemed like a miss or a a positive surprise in terms of the pace of inflation. We got a big print on PPI again today. We saw UK inflation at 30-year highs. So, and yet and yet you see treasuries come off a little bit and you see a big bid to stocks. So you rightly so pointing out that there are, are a lot of maybe behind the scenes currents um, that are influencing these moves. So 
Let's go over some of the numbers um, for those of you who may be listening and driving and, and not plugged into your screens. NASDAQ up. I, it probably ended up 2%, but it was well above 2% into the close, kind of rallying into the close. S&P and Dow strong gains. 10-year uh, Treasury edging back down. VIX also edging back down. Um, what, what, what did you make of the market action? You, you just mentioned you think Japanese is at play, but what do you think the psychology is around these inflation numbers right now, Darius? Yeah, so uh, let me take a step back and sort of explain the market action, right? Right now, we're still in a regime where we're comfortably above 5% uh, headline inflation. That tends to be, at least empirically speaking, the demarcation line between stocks and bonds having a positive correlation. So any positive bid, and it works in both directions, right? If bonds go down, stocks have been going down with them. Bonds go up, stocks have gone up with them. And then obviously you get the, uh, the added kicker when you're talking about NASDAQ-type exposures or crypto type exposures, those will have a higher beta to a, to a decline in bond bond yields. And so that's sort of what, in my opinion, what's really driving the market today is the market sort of reassessing this 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 risk that the Bank of Jam was going to get incrementally tighter, and they obviously did not. And so there's you know, the markets can celebrate that for a while. Going back to the inflation data, there's a lot to unpack in the inflation data because for a while there, at least initially on the response yesterday, and I'm talking about the March CPI data because the PPI data sort of just tells us what we already know. For a while there, there was a very positive market response to the print, right? We saw the slowdown, or not the, yeah, the, the deceleration core CPI, it came in light relative to consensus expectations. And that was a very positively, that was a celebrated influence. And obviously we had the big reversal, um, you know, intraday yesterday and, and sold off into the close. And that was obviously, in our opinion, driven by sort of a, you know, once an analyst like myself and other investors got a chance to really dig into the data, it was very clear, particularly when some of the, 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 the Fed, regional Fed inflation metrics kind of came out and started to trickle out. It was very clear that this narrative of peak inflation is a little bit too soon. Um, mm. And the reason I say that, um, you know, you look at headline CPI on a, on a three-month seasonally adjusted annualized basis, we're looking at that from an impulse perspective, because I think the headline is not necessarily telling the right story. The story that matters is what the Fed is going to do. And if you look at it on, from a three-month SAR basis in terms of the impulse, the impulse is still decidedly higher than the year-over-year -year time series. We're about 10.8% on three-month SAR relative to 8.5% on year-over-year uh, on, on -year headline CPI. So uh, that's an issue. But more importantly, when you look at things that I think are more relevant for the Fed, when you look at the CPI time series and, and, and everything that's in it, median CPI, the three-month SAR there accelerated to 6.4%. That's an all-time high. And it's about mm -hmm. 200 basis points faster than the actual year over year. So we're continuing to build inflation momentum in median CPI. This is everything, the median of all the, the different components of the CPI basket. And then lastly, sticky CPI, which should actually have the Fed a little bit more concerned as well, that accelerated to 6.6% on a three-month SAR basis. That's the fastest pace we've seen since August of 1990, and that's 150 basis points or somewhere between 150 and 200 basis points faster than the year-over-year -year, uh, time series and sticky CPI. So all that means is that we continue to build inflation momentum where it counts. Inflation might have peaked from a core CPI perspective, but if you think about the broad basinness of inflation, the stickiness of inflation, and the overall headline inflation that continues to royal low to medium income consumers, the Fed has a, has a ton of work to do. And in fact, we could argue looking at that print, uh, they, have, they have incremental work to do. Wow. Okay. So, because that is contrary to this sort of, you know, because it was interesting. You saw the headlines almost right after the number came out. Has inflation peaked? Are we at peak inflation? So, um, great questions coming in, by the way. Uh, you know I like to get as many in as possible, so go, go ahead and dump them in if you're listening. But um, 
John asking from the RV site, uh, and this is, I think, what we're worried about. Okay, if that's sticky and the momentum is building, that means the Fed is going to have to be ag- aggressive or really try to, you know, get a try to get ahead of this or at least catch up. It's because they're so right. behind. Given that the Fed now doing QT, what are some of the areas of the plumbing that we should be looking at to see if there is stress developing in the financial system? Have you noticed any events that would indicate stress in the past few months? That's from John, and it's it's appropriate because. The graphic we just had up, well, the Fed will likely force to tighten until something breaks. <laughs> so I think, are we seeing strains or any signs of anything breaking? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it's, uh, Brian put up, uh, while well, I was talking, one of those charts, median CPI, sticky CPI, but, CPI, but uh, to address, I think it was John's, John, that was a phenomenal question. Because to me, I think this is one of the more interesting market developments. If you look at it on sort of like a trailing one-month basis or something like that, or a trailing two, three-week basis, we're seeing a lot of, widening a lot of steepening in the yield curves with you look at tens twos fives thirties in fact brian if you could throw up that chart uh treasury yield curves and this is really important as it relates to the plumbing because typically what happens when you have a wide steepening yield curve there's usually sort of a positive growth impulse associated with that or at the bare minimum at least with respect to fives thirties a positive inflation uh, impulse associated with that well going back to the growth i think it's really interesting that you're seeing such a widening in the or steepening in the yield curve at the same time we continue to see growth expectations decline and more importantly growth data decline um the next chart brian to put up is the the high beta low beta ratio and, and the reason we this is one of our four horsemen of market risk at, at 42 macro that's the chart on the right there the high beta low beta ratio and what typically happens is that you tend to see uh, outperformance or, or increase in that ratio during sort of economic expansions when when growth's accelerating and you tend to see a decline in the ratio underperformance of high beta stocks relative to low beta stocks when when that ratio is is decline or sorry when the growth is decelerating. So it's a very odd to see steepening yield curve with declining growth expectations as as evidenced by these market internal ratios. And then go back to the data we got yesterday as well in terms of NFIB because I thought it was a very underappreciated print. The headline NFIB small business optimism survey ticked down to 93.2 that's the lowest print we've seen since the lockdowns of april 2020. like no one's talking about this the the price Mm -hmm. pressures we're seeing in the economy is effectively taking a key and turning off the ignition for low to medium income consumers and small to medium sized enterprises in its economy and obviously the large cap companies the multinational companies they have a lot of flexibility and a lot of levers to pull as it relates to generating earnings and cash flows and they're going to be the last ones to get taken out um, in what we believe is a bear market but right now you continue to see a lot of stress and pain on the lower end of the income spectrum whether you look at households and corporates um, going back to that nfib print every component of that that every sub survey within that with that that um, within that release if it had anything to do with prices price plans wages or employment, all of which are lagging indicators, they're up making new highs. And if it had anything to do with CapEx, you know, uh, inventory accumulation and, you know, things that have to do with expansion and growth, they're all continuing to break down. And so to me, the data, when you actually kind of get your hands and get messy with the data, we continue to get incremental confirmation of a lot of things we've been talking about in this program since going back to the fall, which yeah. is the economy's in a slowdown. Inflation is a problem from a, from a levels perspective, and the Fed's got to do a lot about it. And oh, by the way, 
they're not going to get any signal from a from a from a reported data standpoint to tell them to stop doing a lot about that. And that, in my opinion, is an issue as it relates to the plumbing. And let me put a yeah, final tip because, on this. And you're and it's a terrible situation for small mid sized companies because they theoretically have to deal with momentum, uh, the inflation momentum you talk about, which is going to take time to ease and higher rates and higher bar borrowing costs. So they're going to hit all around. And these are some of them companies that are still trying to struggle to come out of the mess of the pandemic. So it's a really you're tough spot. Question on, on question coming on that, Darius. Does that mean what does that mean for something like the Russell? Oh, this me. <laughs> poor Rod. Answer I mean, the I question. I think yeah. I think the 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 chuckle should answer the question. But one one final point I want to make on the plumbing because I do believe it's a really important kind of important signal at this current juncture, which is you know, and and Joseph Wong, Fed guy, it's been freaking all over this. I mean, just an absolute stellar call as it relates to kind of the plumbing issues as it relates to the duration in the Treasury market. We, the Treasury market is is orders of magnitude larger now than it was kind of the last time the Fed was sort of you know tightening this um, this aggressively and this persistently, but the amount of liquidity in the Treasury market it really hasn't budged. And so unless we see some regulatory changes that will allow banks and dealers to flex their balance sheet to absorb some coupon issuance in the coming quarters, this sort of plumbing issue is becoming a real problem for the long end of the Treasury curve. Now in the very immediate term. This, this sort of you know incremental update out of the Bank of Japan is capped yields for now, but I'm not sure if we've seen the high end yields um, given the inflation momentum and given the lack of liquidity uh, in in the um, in the Treasury market. So uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna continue to ask and and stay on that as well because we hear that. I think the question we're all looking for is where does it show up? Not guaranteed it's going to show up the last in the same place it did the last time when we saw issues with the repo market. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Bo pointing out um, in a question, uh, J.P. Morgan added $902 million to loss provision loan, loss provision reserves, basically reserves for bad loans. Is that a concern? And with all the QE, can the deposits on the balance sheet create the appearance of more deposit savings than is really accessible? Um, yeah, so that that's interesting because typically banks tend not to to, to they don't want to do anything to hurt their earnings, right? So they're mm -hmm. usually not uh, building loan loss reserves like sort of pro cyclically. They tend to do it, you know, sort of um, or sorry, not pro counter cyclically. They tend to do it pro cyclically, right? And that obviously tends to complicate things. Maybe they've gotten a little bit more discipline relative to previous cycles, and so I don't want to um, kind of uh, you know I don't want to to read too much into this, but. From our perspective, and we look at all sorts of metrics to understand where we are in the credit cycle, and at least according to the latest data, which tends to be quite lagged on some of these metrics, but you know we don't see a lot of sort of leverage cycle risk in the economy. Um, and what I mean by leverage cycle risk is either through adverse selection, growing credit too fast, and and actually you know extending uh, debt to to borrowers who have the inability to pay. And we don't see a lot of sort of tightening risk yet. 
Um, you know, we got, we've obviously seen a dramatic increase in mortgage rates. We've seen a dramatic increase in sort of high yield, yield to mature, yield to worse, yield to maturity type rates. And so those things will start to flow through. And so maybe by the time we get incremental data, you know, call it for Q2, Q3 of this year, we'll get it be in a place where it makes sense for those banks to be building loan loss reserves. But for now, I think that's less of a signal. Uh, Joder from the RV site um, asking, saying, thanks for the update on uh, Yen. You're welcome. Uh, does that does this in any way affect the Fed's plan here in the U.S.? No, absolutely not. The Fed, the Fed has blinded Ray Charles glasses and earmuffs on. It is, it is. They have to tighten. Um, the incremental data, obviously PPI data today, the inflation data yesterday. They're getting it's getting worse, not better. I mean, Wall Street might want to run around with the narrative that inflation has peaked, and maybe it has peaked in year-over-year rate of change terms. And obviously, just you, 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 the base effects really start to steepen in April. And so this, this expectation amongst Wall Street that inflation has peaked. And again, we agree that on a year-over-year rate of change basis, inflation might have peaked. But the momentum in the time series continues to be unhinged relative to the Fed's uh, projections, relative to their targets, um, both relative to projections and relative to their target. And so until we get a significant breakdown in the momentum in these inflation time series, median CPI, sticky CPI, headline CPI, core PCE, which is obviously their preferred metric, they're going to keep their foot on the gas as it relates to on the break, really, as it relates to to pulling back liquidity. And so, you know, incrementally, we're going to get the update uh, the early part of next month. Um, we expect fully a 50 basis point hike in May, 50 base, basis point hike in June. Maybe they'll pause on 50 basis points. But certainly the the pace of quantitative tightening, which, oh, by the way, 95 billion a month is a preposterously high number. We've mm. we the reason we are at 4000 something on the S&P, which if you pull up a five or 10 year chart, SP, the chart looks ridiculous in non-log terms. The reason we are at these levels because they did one hundred and ten billion dollars a month of QE. Now, what happens when they do basically the opposite in reverse for an extended period of time? We, we are headed for some for some issues, uh, maybe not over the very near term, but certainly over the medium term once the, the, the sort of growth slowdown really kicks in. Well, I'm glad you said that because um, Hatesh on YouTube asked, is it possible for the, the market um, to to uh, have a divergence basically from these fundamentals and for risk assets to make new all-time highs before we head for anything like that or higher volatility again? Is is there a shot that markets push higher before, before we see that come to roost sort of? Yeah. So yes and no. Obviously, there's always a possibility for for anything to happen in financial markets. I've been surprised many times throughout my career. It's not whether it's a possibility. It's is it is it a probability? probability and, uh, and, yeah. and Brian, if you pull up the chart, uh, crowding and dispersion, in our opinion, it's it's less of a po- it's less of a probability. And the reason I say it, so from the very near term perspective, we're heading in OPEX tomorrow. I think uh, per SPOC M, our buddies over there, I uh, think about 30 to 40 percent. OPEX, you mean o- o- options expiration, correct? Yeah, Which option, creates volatility ex- around that as people roll out of one contract into another, right? Bingo, absolutely. And so, you know, there's a there's a decent amount of uh, gamma exposure expiring next tomorrow. Um, I want to say somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of index gamma is expiring. And so the unwind of those hedges from a dealer balance sheet perspective tends to create positive flows in the market. Well, if you look at this crowding chart, the chart of the left, um, you, we finally built up some implied volatility premia across U.S. equities, across global equities, across risk assets broadly. And so the sort of the the, the, the confluence of 
OPEX and potential Vanna flows associated with that implied vol premia can be positive in the very near term. In fact, it probably it should be positive. And this is exactly one of the reasons we're seeing so much strength uh, week today, or at least, you know, at least um, today and, and potentially tomorrow as well. And so will we get to new all-time highs in stocks? Will we get to new all-time highs in, in crypto and all of those assets? I don't think there's enough Vanna flow risk. And certainly we don't have OPEX every single day to get you there. So it's probably got to come on something fundamental because obviously the liquidity function in the market continues to be quite, quite poor. Um, we don't see all, new all-time highs. You certainly could trade positively uh, into the start of quantitative tightening, but it's very unlikely that the markets are going to do anything but go down um, uh, for, during quantitative tightening. And the problem with this, and I keep bringing this up, um, it's core to our thesis, is that right now we're dealing with a very, very modest trending pace of deceleration. The economy is obviously you know, slowing from what is a very, very robust pace of growth in 2021 towards something that looks like trend or below trend. We happen to think it's headed below trend. That pace of deceleration, at least according to our models, will start to pick up uh, in a more to a more meaningful clip by the time you get late Q2, Q3, and throughout Q4. That, in our opinion, is where a lot of the market risk associated with this removal of liquidity is likely to come from. Because it's one thing to tighten monetary policy when growth is fine. It's mm -hmm. another thing to tighten monetary policy and drain a $95 billion a month um, from the Fed's balance sheet or from the net liquidity function in the economy when growth is not fine. And in our opinion, that you know, that's probably three or four months away before we start to get towards the eye of the storm in that process. Yeah, it seems like the eye of the storm is really lining up for, the, for sort of the beginning of the summer or sort of into the summer. What are you recommending in terms of how to find protection in that super dicey time, Dara? It's kind of hard. What, what, what are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, obviously we, we, you know, we help clients construct portfolios at 42 Macro in terms of, uh, so I won't be too specific and out of yeah. respect for our paying clients. But obviously the key takeaway is, is cash. I mean, yeah. cash is a very underappreciated as asset. And obviously we know if you look at on a year-over-year -year basis, you lost 8.5% of your money in cash. If you look at it on a three-month annualized basis, you lost 10.8% of your money in cash. But guess what? You could have lost significantly more money being long the wrong kinds of assets. And we do believe that over the course of the year, cash will likely prove to be one of the assets that outperforms most assets because most assets are likely to have a negative absolute return uh, throughout, this, throughout 2022 and potentially into 2023. Yeah. Until the Fed pivots dovish, there's really no reason not to have a significant amount of cash. And we are, to quote uh, my friend Jay Powell, we are a long ways away from a dovish pivot. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, unless they yeah, break something yeah. so badly. But that that's for another conversation. And one thing that I took away from last week is even if you have a long-term perspective, um, you suffer one of those really hard drawdowns. It takes a lot to build it back up again. So you want you do want to try to avoid them if you can. Um, Darius, fantastic stuff today. There's going to be a lot of moving parts for us to watch uh, in the coming weeks. So thank you so much for that great insight, as always. Thank you, Maggie. Appreciate being on. Thank you, guys. Yeah. I'll be back the same time tomorrow with Jared Dillian. And don't forget to check out the latest episode of my new podcast, My Life in Four Trades. It's with legendary fund manager Hugh Henry, total renegade, so much wisdom, so much fun. You can get it wherever you download your podcast or at www.realvision forward slash my life in four trades. So check it out. In the meantime, huge fan, Maggie. Big fan. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. It's been so fun. Um, it's about trading, but it's really about decision making and risk. And we all life. need help with that right now. It's Gosh. about parenthood. It's about friendship. Yeah. It's about everything. Yeah, it's I good just stuff. said, who, who would have thought I was going to get parenting advice from Hugh Hendry? And yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Not directly, but I did. <laughs> so thanks, Darius. Uh, but anyway, um, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. So we will see you same time tomorrow. In the meantime, uh, good luck. Uh...
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.